So I guess there is a preacher today. That's what I've been told anyway. Ah, thank you. All right. So you get your Bibles ready in Matthew. We're going to be there again, Matthew 13. Get there in a few minutes here. But first, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for today, and we thank You for Sunday, and that we can gather together as a people under Your Word and in great need of Jesus. And so we just ask for Your help today. Help us to truly understand what You have to say to us, uh, that Your Holy Spirit would, would speak to us and that we would be, be changed, and that You would help us to listen For you would give us ears to hear and respond to Jesus with change. So God, would you do that today? In Jesus' name, amen. So it's been a new year now for, what, about a month. And some of us are already disappointed with how it's going. Uh, The goals and the resolutions that we made have been obliterated Maybe we bailed on our exercise plan um, or the dieting we were going to do. Maybe we binge-watched three seasons on Netflix instead of just one a month. Uh, We may be a little bit more frustrated with our job than we ended 2016 with or maybe more frustrated in our relationships than we ended 2016 with. Uh, Maybe most significantly we started the year with great aspirations and Hopes uh, with a new passion for Jesus, a big Bible reading plan, prayer, and we may already feel like we failed. So today, I want us to start over. I want us to reassess um, how we are doing this new year and to evaluate that not by diets or budgets or practical or even spiritual goals, but how we are doing inside of our own hearts inside our souls. I want us to listen to what Jesus is calling us to in this passage and to ask ourselves, how are you, how am I doing so far in 2017 about this in the state of my own heart? So the question this morning's passage is asking is, how are you hearing the message of Jesus? How are you hearing the message of Jesus. How are we listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying in the Scriptures at church, in our Bible reading at home, the one spoken to us by a friend or a family member? Maybe frame it in terms of this year. What is the state of my heart right now in 2017? Not what it was or what it has been, what it will be, but what it is right now. If your heart was soil, what kind would it be? Would it be thin, rocky, rootless, thorny, or is it good, healthy soil? So let's listen to Matthew in these 23 verses, which we're not going to talk about each one. So That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, 
and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their ears and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their ears and hear with their hearts and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty and in another 30. This is God's Word. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of the parable itself, I want us to look at the big picture for a moment. Notice how Jesus is telling this parable to a big crowd in the first paragraph. That's verses 1 to 9. A big crowd is around him. And see that he only gives the interpretation, the meaning of the parable to a small crowd of his disciples in verses 10 through 23. And this difference between insiders and outsiders, big crowds and few disciples, is an important distinction to make when understanding Jesus' purpose in speaking in parables. And so with that structure in mind, I want us to begin in the middle of the passage where Jesus gives us the reason for the way he is communicating. And then move to holding the story of the parable at the beginning with the explanation of the parable at the end. So we're going to start in the mysterious middle, 10 through 17. 
Often parables are misunderstood. Sometimes we think of them as easy explanations, that they're simple stories that anyone can understand. Maybe Jesus in the Gospels seems easier to understand than, say, Paul in the epistles with long arguments and rhetoric as a Pharisee, or ex-Pharisee, I should say. But this is not the case. Though Jesus is using imagery that's common, that all kinds of people would resonate with in their daily experience, Jesus tells us that the reason he speaks in parables is to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 6 that pictures people with closed eyes, nearly deaf ears, and dull hearts that are unable to understand the message given to them. We know this is the intent of Jesus in using parables as a whole and that this is not just an isolated incident for this particular parable because the disciples ask Him, Why do you speak in parables? Why do you speak this way, Jesus? So the parable of the sower is kind of the mother of parables. It sets the stage for all of the ones that follow. One scholar said this is the parable about parables. So we need to see this as we look at all of the parables that are going to come here in the next few weeks as we look at Matthew 13. So according to Jesus, one of the purposes of parables is to conceal the meaning and mystery of the kingdom from some and reveal the meaning and the mystery of the kingdom to others. The structure distinguishing the crowds, the big crowds from the disciples illustrates this, but what Jesus actually says establishes it as well. Parables are spoken for the purpose of concealment and for divine revelation. If we don't want to hear this, it's what Jesus implies. He makes it clear in verses 10 to 17. And we like the fact that God reveals, but we don't like the fact that God would ever conceal something. And so, as always, verses like this get into that whole subject of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. We can try to avoid the subject or just leave it to philosophers, but the Bible and even Jesus puts it right in our faces. Interestingly, Matthew and Mark both tell this parable. Actually, Luke tells it too. But Matthew and Mark both tells the parable and the explanation about the parable in a different way in this particular section of 10 to 17. While Matthew says in verse 13, he reports Jesus saying, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because, that's the word to look at, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Mark reports it this way. To you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So Matthew has because, which emphasizes human responsibility, because, I speak to them because they don't see it, they don't hear it. Mark says, so that, purpose statement, so that emphasizing God's sovereign purpose over people's hearts. Some want to say that Matthew is softening Mark's quotation. Mark's often considered the first gospel. But he's softening it, making it sound like the responsibility for not understanding the parables lies on the people, while Mark is being more direct, making it sound like God is doing the concealing. But even if Matthew it has a different reason, a different aim for 
putting the responsibility on the people, we're still left with the fact that Jesus gives the explanation of the parable. He explains it and he gives the understanding of the parable to some and not to others. And so instead of being a contradiction in the Gospels, it's an example of the truth that God is completely and totally and radically sovereign over the hearts of men and women and that we as people are completely and totally responsible for our own hearts. Both are true. Jesus tells us, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. It talks about the gospel of the kingdom coming. Usually this is at the first of the gospels. Repent and believe it. Do something. And Acts tells us that the ones who believe are the ones who were appointed to eternal life in Acts 13.48. Deuteronomy commands people to circumcise their own hearts. Circumcise your hearts. And then, that's in chapter 10. In chapter 30, it reveals that God is the one who circumcises the heart and changes it so that people will obey. But in this particular section of Scripture, Jesus is saying that properly understanding the parables is a gift. That it is a gift. Do you see that in verse 11 and 12? The word given is used three times. To you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So the one who understands the parables, as Jesus intends, is a recipient of grace. Using our brain to just reason through and kind of know what the parables say, even as what I am doing right now. Jesus is after a different kind of understanding, one that's not achieved by human reason, that's not achieved by human initiative. The kingdom comes and is received by God's grace, by God's revelation. And that's the difference between Christianity and every single other religion. It's based on God's gift. It's not based on works. It's not based on strivings. It's not based on following a list or doing particular things principles. It is a gift. To make it even more clear, Jesus calls it a blessing in verse 16. We do not deserve to fully understand what Jesus says. It's not a human right. It's a God-given divine blessing. Jesus says the disciples are blessed to understand And he says that many prophets, many righteous people longed to see what they had seen, but did not see it. Now the prophets and the righteous people were the people that were awaiting the promises of God to be fulfilled to Israel. It's the Old Testament, essentially. And now God is bringing that fulfillment that they were longing to see in the person of Jesus. The disciples, though they didn't fully get it, and as we read all of the Gospels, we see that they kind of continue not to fully get it, that they were let in on the fulfillment of all of God's promises by following Jesus, even as they were stumbling along the way. And so the disciples are not lucky. They don't deserve it, but they are blessed. They are blessed by God to see it. This longing of the prophets and righteous people of old is what Jesus is unveiling in explaining the parables to his disciples. The parables, Jesus says, when properly understood, contain the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom. The secrets, mysteries 
of the kingdom. Why, why this secretive, mysterious language? Is Jesus trying to be sneaky? Are these secrets something that only special people can get at, that only smart people can unlock, or that only clever people can figure out, like if you're reading a crime novel and you figure it out before the end, or you're watching a, a movie and you've already got the twist down before the twist happens? No. The idea of the mystery, the idea of the secret here and in much of the New Testament is the idea that something that has been hidden has now been revealed. So the secret isn't continuing. It's now being revealed. I'm telling you, this is the mystery. This is, this is the point. This is the climax of the movie, of the plot. Jesus is bringing them in on the purpose of God for human history. He's saying that the plan that he made from the beginning of time is now being fulfilled. It's as if the world has been shrouded by darkness and that the sun is finally beginning to break over the horizon. And that revelation is not something human beings have to figure out by themselves or through action, religious action, or through following traditions. But it's something that God gives by grace in the word and work of Jesus. And not everyone will get this message. Not everyone will respond to Jesus as the point of history, as the ultimate meaning for our lives as human beings. Not everyone is going to understand what Jesus says. Not everyone is going to repent and reorient and change their life to turn around and go to Jesus for healing. So the message of the kingdom arrives in hiddenness and unveiling, concealment and revealing, both which are simultaneously at work in the world. And we're going to see that throughout the rest of the parables in the next few weeks. The whole parable of the sower is one of those parts of the Bible. It's one of these sections of Scripture that we're pretty familiar with. And usually we kind of cut out the middle. We're familiar with the parable and the explanation of it. And we know that familiarity, familiarity breeds contempt, at least they say. And, and we may not feel contempt toward the Scripture, but we may feel a kind of familiarity that breeds indifference. We've heard it so much, it just doesn't affect us all that much anymore. So sure, we, must, we might be listening, maybe we're listening today, our ears are working, functioning, but we aren't really hearing it because we've heard it so many times. Or really, we're thinking about something else, like the Super Bowl. And the fact that Tom Brady will get his redemption from Deflategate, which is another issue. Um, this kind of, of hearing, this kind of hearing here, often takes place between spouses. It's like, yeah, you heard what she said, but you really didn't hear what she said. We are really bad at listening as human beings. And probably we're even worse now as modern human beings. Julian Treasure, his TED Talks on listening have been viewed millions of times. Uh, in a 2011 TED Talk, he said, we are losing our listening. We spend roughly 60% of our communication listening, but we're not very good at it. We retain just 25% of what we hear. End quote. I'm thinking I retain way less than that. And you'll walk out retaining way less than that of this, probably. But hopefully, we get the main point. Some of the reasons that um, uh, Mr. Treasure uh, says is because nowadays we have recordings. We're used to things being recorded. 
turn it on at any time, um, that we live in a noisy world. We're always seeing visual things. We're always hearing things. The noise of electricity in our houses. We're not used to silence anymore. Um, we live in a soundbite culture. We live in broadcasting that's basically just going after the, the next soundbite or scrolling through the phone, going after the next link. And Jesus is calling us out of this kind of familiarity, this kind of indifference, this kind of way of listening. And he's calling to the crowds in verse 9 to hear in a way that they will respond, that they will change. He who has ears, let him hear. He knows they all have ears, but hear and respond. Jesus uses the same phrase later in Revelation. So the resurrected Christ uses the same phrase when when those letters are given to the churches scattered around Asia Minor. And he says that at the beginning of the letter because he's trying to jolt them out of their sin for the most part, for most of the churches. And that they would understand the meaning and repent and turn to Jesus. And so he's calling us today to the same kind of listening that brings true understanding. And so that word understanding is scattered throughout all of these verses. When we look at this whole, it comes up several times in these 23 verses. And it's not talking about theoretical knowledge. It's not talking about technical knowledge. He isn't teaching a, a theology course and trying to get us to pass the test and have all the right answers. He is after an understanding of the heart. Look at that in verse 15 when he quotes Jesus' prophecy. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart. That's speaking of them that don't, but he's also calling them in the good soil to understand in that way, understand from the heart. That Jesus wants our hearts, that he wants all of us at the deepest level inside, not just our words. The great theologian and revivalist Jonathan Edwards in probably my favorite Christian book, The Religious Affections, says it like this. And keep in mind when he uses the term religion, he's not talking about legalism. He's talking about true Christianity. He says, The religion which God requires and will accept does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless wishes, raising us but a little above a state of indifference. God in His Word greatly insists upon it that we be in good earnest, fervent in spirit, and our hearts vigorously engaged in religion. He that has doctrinal knowledge and speculation only, without affection, without emotion, never is engaged in the business of religion. He goes on to say, As on the one hand there must be light in the understanding, as well as an affected, fervent heart, Or where there is heat without light, there can be nothing divine or heavenly in the heart. So on the other hand, where there is a kind of light without heat, a head that's stored with notions and speculations, but a cold and unaffected heart, there can be nothing in that light. That knowledge is no true spiritual knowledge of divine things. If the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. End quote. So our hearts, not our brains, are the key to spiritual understanding. Information can enter our heads and be completely useless to us. And again, in our age, we have no problem absorbing information. But if we have all kinds of problems understanding information, having it assimilated into us so that it it changes us and it changes the culture of our hearts. So the greatest need that I have 
The greatest need that I have is not more knowledge. It's this kind of understanding. It's this understanding of the heart that is changed. This is our desperate need. This is something that we need more than anything else the rest of this year. Whatever is on your list of what you're failing at or you want to succeed in, this is the most important thing. We need to respond to Jesus with the understanding of our hearts so that we will turn and be healed and be made whole by Him so that we will live lives that are productive and fruitful. Healing and fruitfulness. So true success, a true successful 2017 is found in turning to Jesus, in responding to Him, no matter what's going to come this year, whether it's persecution, whether it's wealth, whether it's more cares and anxieties, that no matter what else comes, true success this year and fruitfulness will be determined by the way in which we respond to Jesus. And if we respond this way and bear fruit. So, is this how you are responding to Jesus today? Check your heart. Turn off the noise of later today of of what's going to happen next week and ask God to give you eyes to see and a heart to understand. So, Let's look at the parable. This story presents us with four categories of people. Four categories of people that Jesus images by types of soil. And they illustrate four unique responses to the person of Jesus. And all of us are in at least one of the categories. Jesus is saying that the first three soils are not true Christians. They are not true Christians. While the last soil reflects a true Christian, the only genuine follower of Jesus is a fruit-bearing one. Not a perfect one. Not a perfect one. Because notice, even the way that when he explains it at the end, that there's different scales of fruit. Different sizes. Could be a supersized fruit basket, could be medium basket, could be a smaller fruit basket, but all three are good soil and all three are following Jesus. And interestingly, the identity of the farmer, the sower, isn't defined for us, but it's likely Jesus. The point of the parable then is not about the sower in this particular instance. The point of the parable is about the soil's relationship to the seed, the message of Jesus and the word of the kingdom. So let's look at these images of soil and do so with another illustration by naming them. Let's name them. Let's, let's call the first soil Ordinary Owen. All right. So the first soil we're going to call Ordinary Owen. And that's the soil where the seed falls on the path. The second, rocky and rootless soil, we're going to call Juiced Jack. Juiced Jack. The third soil we're going to call Worldly Wanda. And the last soil we're going to call Fruitful Fay. Fruitful Fay. So, first, verse 4. Verse 4, we have the kind of soil that is found on a pathway that cuts through a field where seed just falls on top of, just falls on the surface. It doesn't enter it at all because the ground has been toughened by walking because it was intended to be a pathway and have foot traffic so that when the birds come, they just gobble the seed right up off of the top. And so that's ordinary Owen. Owen is an average Joe. He has a regular job. Maybe he has a few Christian friends that he doesn't even mind too much. He may go to church on the holidays. He may actually go to church all the time. 
But when he hears the message about Jesus, it just bounces off of him. It's just another set of information, maybe another spiritual idea. But how does this happen? Why does this happen? And one of the reasons these scriptures tell us is that it's because his heart is hard. His heart has been hardened. His heart is tough. It's like a pathway traveled on. That he responds to Jesus with indifference. He doesn't necessarily feel any animosity toward Jesus. In fact, he doesn't really care all that much about whether one follows Jesus at all, whether it's another religious teacher, maybe it's whether we believe in God at all. And he feels indifferent, just bounces off, goes away. Not important. But little does he know that he is believing a lie, that he has been duped by Satan. This verse tells us that that kind of person is experiencing something much more sinister than just indifference. Jesus says in verse 19 that the message goes into ordinary Owen's ears and then the devil snatches it away. So we should not minimize the satanic influence over the unbelieving world. Owen is every man, a human being born into the world who has been blinded by the God of this world. The New Living Translation translates 2 Corinthians 4.4 this way, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. So that's what Satan does. He undermines God's word so that we believe a lie. It's what he did in the Garden of Eden. And this is what he does to ordinary Owen and to every other person who is indifferent to Jesus. Like Eve, instead of believing the truth about God, unbelievers believe the lie of the devil. So ordinary Owen isn't so ordinary. There's something extraordinary happening. There's something supernatural happening that's going on in his heart. He is, as Ephesians tells us, a son of disobedience. And instead of following Jesus, he's actually following the prince of the power of the heir whose spirit is at work within the sons of disobedience. That's the plight of unbelieving people. Let's look at the next category. In verses 5 and 6, we find the seed that falls on rocky ground and springs up quickly, that it doesn't take root in soil and that it withers. And so this is juice jack. Juice Jack, he is the guy who hears the message of Jesus and treats it like a performance-enhancing drug. So he receives the message at first with joy, like it's a shot of spiritual adrenaline. Notice that word immediately in verse 20. He immediately receives this message with joy. So he attends youth group. He attends summer camp. He attends all the latest Christian conferences with the best celebrity Christian speakers. And so he's jazzed up about Jesus for months. He's had amazing times at the altar, amazing amounts of worship that have, that have stirred him in his, in his heart. But when the buzz fades away, when tribulations and persecutions of life come, it reveals that he's had enough. He's done with Jesus. The word tribulation in the ESV is closer to the word pressure in the original language and contains the idea of stomping upon grapes until they burst for winemaking. 
So Juice Jack can't take the pressures that might come on account of the word. He can't deal with any of the hardships and the disappointments and persecutions that show up when we live life according to what Jesus has said and done. And so he withers under that weight. He eventually feels trapped by Jesus and is offended by how following Jesus would impact his relationship at work and in public and would impact the way in which people think about him. When suffering for the faith or suffering in a fallen world hits, he's, he's done. He's done with Jesus. Suffering scorches him. It proves that his faith was rootless and superficial. He didn't get the wonderful plan for his life that he thought he was promised. So he quits. So though Juice Jack once appeared to be happy, once appeared to be the fired up Christian that maybe even we always wanted to be, he never was a genuine follower of Jesus. Verse 21 reveals that as quick as the spiritual joy arrived, it leaves just as fast when hardship shows up. And though these are dealing with particular categories of people, I think we can also ask as we work through these, where am I in these? Even if you are a follower of Jesus, even if you are bearing fruit, is pressure and hardship, how is that affecting the state of my heart? And to ask yourself that question. What pressures am I facing this year? What, what is it revealing inside my heart? Worldly Wanda. Worldly Wanda. Jesus turns to this third category of soil. The soil filled with thorns. Wanda is probably the kind of person that sits in the pews of, of churches in America. Unfortunately, worldly Wanda is often given a mistaken identity especially in certain church circles. Worldliness is labeled as smoking or drinking, listening to secular music, watching rated R movies, hanging out with the wrong crowd. That's kind of the epitome of worldliness. That's what separates the sheep from the goats. But worldliness is much more subtle. It's the cares of the world and the seductive wiles of wealth. So in other words, it's basically what our whole culture is built on. What our whole culture is built on. The cares of the world that Jesus speaks of is actually not plural. So it's not like I have all these different anxieties and cares. It's actually singular. So he is speaking of the ethos of life in the kingdoms of this world as opposed to the way of life in the kingdom of God and the world to come. And so it's a general God-neglecting attitude about world history and about culture. It's a worldview where the priorities of day-to-day life become larger than the priorities of the kingdom of God, become larger than the priorities of what Jesus calls us to. Worldliness is being defined by what our age values. David Wells, he's a, like a sociologist, cultural critic, and also a theologian. He says, worldliness makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Worldliness makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. So worldly Wanda's emotions and her choices are ruled by her pocketbook more than Jesus' provision and promises. She's ruled by the cares of who's in the White House, which party is in power, maybe the anxieties that may or may not come due to a particular president or a particular leader. 
and that those outweigh her trust in her Heavenly Father. So she finds her fulfillment in worries and pursuits and ambitions of trying to get ahead, trying to have enough, trying to be secure. And she chokes to death, is what is said about this person. She chokes to death. The image of choking is startling. The thorns asphyxiate the life of the plant. And so worldly Wanda demonstrates her lack of genuine faith by dying a slow death. She actually lasts longer than the others. But eventually worldliness, money, materialism, the pleasures of life, the way in which the whole culture and structure of society moves, strangles her and becomes most important other than Jesus. And so again, we should check ourselves. We should evaluate ourselves. How are we affected by just the way of the world? Not the so-called bad, bad things that certain people may or may not do. But just, but just the way of just the way of life, the way of thinking, the the needs that advertising is going to show us during the Super Bowl, the way that we should be living, what we really need. How are we? Are we trying to find fulfillment in those things? Are those things trying to shape us? The way in which the culture says certain things are normal, but God says, or, or the certain things are normal or okay, but God says are wicked. How do we? Respond to that. What's the state of our heart? Finally, fruitful Fay. She's different than all the others. She understands the word. That's what it says. Understands the word. So she receives it deep into her heart as the most valuable thing in the world. The pain of suffering and persecution and the priorities of the world do not compete with the preciousness of Jesus. The preciousness of His message. She doesn't follow Jesus perfectly. She's like the disciples. Ups and downs. She still has questions for Jesus. Not everything makes sense. She still acts like Peter sometimes. She still doubts like Thomas sometimes. But Jesus has won her heart. She's still following Jesus. She still goes back to Jesus. Because there's nowhere else to go. There's no other person who is worth banking her life on. So she bears fruit. Her acceptance of the word leads to action and change. Though not perfect in her obedience, she is productive in her obedience. She's not saved by her fruit, but her fruit confirms that her faith is real and that she has received the effective word. So ultimately, why... Is she different than Owen and Jack and Wanda? We know she's different because she understands Jesus at a deeper level than the others and she responds to Jesus appropriately. The soil of her heart is soft. It's, it's recipient. It's not hard, rocky, or thorny like the others. But the ultimate reason why Faye bears fruit is not because she had something naturally inside her that she was born into or that she somehow was more tuned into Jesus than the other people. She's fruitful because God has favored her. She's fruitful because she's a recipient of the blessing. She's a recipient of the gift that Jesus described in verses 10 through 17. And that fruitfulness and that harvest, those numbers that Jesus gives, um, are more than average yields for Palestine. And so it's another way of showing divine blessing. 
In Genesis 26.12, Isaac has a field that produces 100-fold. And then it goes on in the context to talk about the different possessions and the way that God increased him and God blessed him. And so the credit isn't given to Isaac because he's a savvy farmer and he has a bunch of really good things that he's done, but it's a signal of God's blessing to him, that he's blessed him. And so fruitfulness is ultimately the result of a heart transplant, that every single one of us is born into the world with bad soil. We don't have morally neutral soil. The skin of our hearts is hardened to God, that apart from Christ our hearts beat for any other God but Him, and that we cannot give ourselves the heart transplant that we need. We need another set of soil. Our hearts are hard, like maybe the ground outside in your yard, or maybe thorny or rootless or not that good. And so the Holy Spirit shows up like the guy at Ace Hardware who brings out the bag of happy frog or miracle grow soil and gives it to you and replaces the soil in your yard. Good soil within us is always the work of soil given to us by another. So fruitfulness ultimately is the result of a new heart and the work of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says in Ezekiel. If you want to, look at Ezekiel 36, 22 to 32. Ezekiel 36, 22 to 32. And again, he's talking to Israel, the prophet speaking to Israel. Very similar language to the way the Word of God, the prophet, is speaking to Israel in our passage. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and be confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So the context of this chapter doesn't feature God's people as just a spectacular bunch of people that are sold out to God, sold out to Yahweh, but as a messed up people, deserving of judgment, who have profaned His name, and that they are in need of a radical change inside of their hearts to take place. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit loves to do. The news that God gives heart transplants is encouraging, not discouraging, because He does this to sinful people. This is who He does it to. He does it because that's the kind of God He is. It's not for your sake I do it. I do it because of me. 
Because this is who I am. This is the kind of thing that I do. I will put my spirit within you. So it's important for us to see this because we can read a parable like this from Jesus and turn it into another way to just do better, to just try harder, to just have a better year, be more like Jesus, be different kind of sermon. But there is hope in this parable because it helps us see that the only way we can really hear and really understand is by the miracle of grace, by a work of God that comes from outside us and changes us on the inside, that God actually gives himself He gives the Holy Spirit to do this inside of us. That He gives us this good news of the Gospel that's found in Jesus. So in closing, I want us to see one more thing that helps us see, not as Ezekiel shows, how He gives Himself in the Holy Spirit, but how He gives Himself in Jesus. It comes from this morning's Scripture text in Isaiah 6 that Bob gave away a hint to this morning. The last verse of Isaiah contains a gospel clue. The last verse of Isaiah contains a gospel clue. Isaiah has been given a hard and essentially fruitless ministry. That's what God tells him. Hey, this is what you're going to go do. People aren't going to listen to you. It's going to be hard. Their hearts are going to be hard. And actually, that's why you're having the message. The message actually comes to them as judgment upon them. And Isaiah asks, how long? I mean, wouldn't you ask how long? Really? This is going to be my life doing this? I give the message, nobody listens? How long, Yahweh? Basically, God says, until their cities are wiped out, until they're destroyed, until they're cut down like a tree. And this is where the good news shows up. The stump remains which contains a holy seed. Weird language, honestly. We're like, stump, seed, this is, this is just weird. This makes no sense to us at all. But it's gospel language when we put all the testaments together. And later in Isaiah, in chapter 11, this is what it says about stumps. 1 and 2. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And it goes on. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the fruitful branch that comes from the the remnant of the stump. Jesus is given a prophetic ministry like Isaiah, but he's more than a prophet. He comes not only announcing the Word of God, he comes as the Word of God. He's the greater Isaiah. Yes, Jesus is going to be rejected. Yes, people will not understand his life and ministry. Many will not be defined by it. Many will not repent and trust him, but they'll be fascinated by their own little kingdoms of whether it's Rome or Phariseeism or America or religion. But where Isaiah did not see the fulfillment of the holy stump of Israel, Jesus did. He was gathering this new remnant, this small crowd around him. He was gathering a new people, a new Israel around him. So he is the answer to the how long of Isaiah. Jesus is the long-awaited fulfillment. He's the one that Isaiah longed to see. It's him. 
And so the good news in this passage is that God is gathering a people who have good soil around Jesus. So, how will you respond to Him today? Will you look away from yourself? Will you look away from all of life's obstacles, worries? Will you trust Him? The world is going to choke us to death. That's what it's going to do. Spiritual superficiality and religious highs and resolutions are only going to last so long for you and I. But Jesus is never going to fail us. He promises to always be with us, even when the with includes things that are very uncomfortable. If you listen to Him and abide in Him and entrust Him with your life, Jesus will heal you. He will make you whole. We will be, produ- we will be productive and fruitful people if we respond to Jesus from the core of our being and define ourselves around Him as true understanding. So, our response to Jesus starts right now. It starts with communion. It starts with the fact that Jesus overcame all the obstacles that the first three soils succumbed to. Jesus defeated Satan by letting the ruling powers and demonic powers look like they had won in His humiliating death. But that was the very way in which He killed death and triumphed over Satan. It appeared that Satan had snatched the word of life from the world. But Jesus was bruised in order to crush Satan and was the way in which He defeated him. Jesus went to the cross even though it caused temporary pain and suffering, seeking lasting joy, eternal joy. Jesus endured and obeyed perfectly all the way to the end. And finally, Jesus had a crown of thorns placed on His head. He faced the mockery and the ridicule of the world so that He could show us, show that He could show us the love of the Father for sinners. To forgive those who do not know and who do know what they're doing. That's what Jesus did. So He who has ears to hear and who has eyes to see, understand that. See that. Let's be changed by that. Eat His body. Drink His blood. Receiving Him as the only satisfaction for your sins. And the only one who is going to bring you and me real lasting change and real fruit. Lord, help us.
So Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Want to stand? We're going to sing one more song. Thank you.